And so where we left things last week is we're heading for a collision course. There's a storm brewing in Jerusalem. The authorities don't want to hear about Jesus and the resurrection, but the disciples can't stop speaking about it. So today's passage doesn't deal with any of that. We take a terrible step back from all of that external conflict, rising opposition. We're away from the public eye here. This is really about the internal life of the church. And so the question I had when I was looking at this and began to look at it a few weeks ago is why does Luke even include any of this at all? In fact, we've sort of seen some of it a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. Well, the conclusion I came to is that this is still part of Luke's big aim. His big aim is that he wants to give Christians, people like us, confidence that God is doing his work in the world, and we're part of that. But today Luke's giving us a, a different kind of evidence. He's not just doing the big speeches and the big testimonies to Jesus. This is something more down to earth. This is something about the normal life of the community. What he's doing is he's giving us a picture of the community that the gospel generates. And he's wanting to show us that this is really a supernatural community. It's not just a human society. So this morning we're going to see two signs, really, that the Spirit is filling a community. Two things that we could use to work out whether the church is really any different to the rest of the world. And I think if we get these this morning, then this will help us to have real confidence that what we're doing here at church this morning is not just a few people sitting in a big building following some ancient beliefs that are maybe going out of fashion, but actually becoming part of what God is doing in the world. Okay, we're going to spend more time on the first of those signs, and it's the stuff at the end of chapter 4 there. And that's showing us that God's favour was clearly seen in this community. There's two amazing things about this community, and they're both in verse 32, so have a look at me. Firstly, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Well, remember that there's 5,000 people in the church now, and they're united. They're on the same page. There's a real unity between them, because they all share the same faith. And that means, secondly, that nobody claimed that any of his possessions was his own. There's massive generosity, massive sharing going on here. And that's really what Luke focuses on in verse 34 to 37. He, he talks more about that sharing. And he's very clear about where this comes from. The source of this is in verse 33. He says that with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Power, you might be beginning to notice, that's almost a code word Luke uses in Acts to talk about the Holy Spirit. Remember how when the Spirit came, Jesus said that was going to be power being poured out to enable people to talk about Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on here. As the apostles are preaching about the resurrection with great power, we're meant to be thinking, well, that's the Spirit giving them power to speak. Only they're not preaching about the gospel now to people outside the church. They're talking about the gospel to people inside the church. And the result is at the end of verse 33, this is the sort of summary. Much grace, or great grace we could say, was upon them all. God's favour was really obvious in that community. It was really obvious that God was blessing them. Why? Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. 
There was so much generosity, so much unity, it was clear to everyone, great grace was upon them all. Well, as I was trying to think about what that means for us in church today, I realised that we need to do some work that we often need to do in Acts, which is to work out whether Luke is describing something that's a kind of early church thing when the apostles were around, or is this something that is a pattern for how the spirit-filled church is throughout all time. And we might look at this and think, this looks a little bit like communism or something like this. Maybe it was a kind of a teenage hippie phase that the early church kind of grew out of, you know, grew its hair long, went for all the sharing, but now we don't really do that anymore. Well, I've maybe given away that I, I think that's maybe not what's going on here. Um, firstly, when, when we look closely at the passage, we can see that it, this isn't communism as we kind of normally understand it, because what's happening is the people are freely choosing to give up what's theirs. It's not that, the, that anyone's coming in and saying, right, there's no more private property anymore. It's not like we're all going to have exactly the same bank balances. What's happening is that people are still own things, but they don't claim them as theirs anymore. You see that in verse 32. Nobody claimed that any of his possessions was his own. So people have stuff, but they hold it very loosely. They don't think of it as theirs. They're willing to put it in the service of anyone who needs it more than them in the community. So it's not communism, but it does live up to the best thing about communism, that idea that there would be no poverty, no needy people in our society. But more importantly than that, this is what God wants for his people. I've been reading through the book of Deuteronomy, um, and I came across chapter 15. I've got a little bit of coming up on the screen. Uh, I've been reading Deuteronomy in the mornings, and it's actually a brilliant book. I recommend it to you. It's got loads to say about how possessions are a really good thing from God, but how we need to be wary of how they drag us away from God. Anyway, came to chapter 15, and here's what it says. Uh, God says, There need to be, or there will be, no poor people among you. For in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. Well, in that passage, it's looking ahead to the time when God keeps his promises, when he blesses people. And the sign that God's people are experiencing his blessing, when they're walking in his ways, is that there's going to be no needy people among them. Thanks, Paul, we can that No needy people among them. What, that's what God intended for his people. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in this passage, isn't it? That's the sign that the Spirit is filling the church, or one of them. No needy people, no poor people. Massive generosity, massive sharing. So I think about this passage a little bit like an iceberg. Now, as we know, uh, icebergs, the visible part of an iceberg is, is not really the main part of an iceberg. The majority of an iceberg is below the waterline, but you can't see it. You know that it's there because you can see the visible part of the iceberg. Well, I think in this passage, the, the giving, the massive generosity, is like the visible part of an iceberg. What's going on underneath the surface, what that's a sign of, is that God's Spirit is working in that community. It's changing people. As they listen to the preaching about the resurrection, they are being transformed, and they're becoming massively generous, and that's what we see. 
And that's something we can take away for ourselves as a church community. We can know that the Spirit's working here if we're seeing that the resurrection is changing us. We're not really told exactly how he was doing this, how the resurrection changed people in this passage. But we have seen already in Acts that the resurrection, when we're talking about that, that does not just mean a kind of one-off historical event. Oh, Jesus was raised from the dead. Great for him. The point is that Jesus being raised from the dead means something massive. It's the start of a new age. It's the start of God fulfilling his purposes at the time when he pours out his spirit. It means that Jesus is coming back. We're all going to be raised from the dead. Jesus is going to judge the world. And then all those who are friends with Jesus are going to enter God's new world, or a stored world. That's what the resurrection of the dead means. And can you see how if you came to believe that you were really going to be part of that new world, a perfect world that God has created, can you see how that would mean that you could be more generous with your stuff here and now? It would mean that you wouldn't need to hold on to things quite so much, wouldn't it? It would mean that you didn't need to be so worried about creating heaven on earth, your own sort of private perfection for you and your family. Because you know Jesus is going to do that for you, one day. And that means you can afford to give away. You can actually make life maybe slightly worse for yourself now, if you can see that somebody else would benefit from what you have. You can be generous. Well, that's exactly what happened in the early church. As the resurrection took hold of their hearts, it changed them. And that's what it will do for us too. The resurrection is powerful. It will change us. It will make us more generous people. Well, for the Jewish people, as they saw this happening in front of their eyes, this really ought to have been a bit of a sign for them to wake up. They're seeing God's purposes for their people fulfilled right in front of their eyes. So they might have had question marks about the resurrection, they might have been very sceptical about that, but this really should have given them a bit of a sign. Listen, God is doing something here. And I think it's not just Jewish people that would look at this passage and think, there's something really good about this. There's something more spiritual about this. It's the kind of society we'd all love to be in, isn't it? One where everyone's sharing, where there's friendship, where there's unity, where there's real community. And that is what the resurrection created. As people heard about the resurrection, that's what the society put sprang up. And I think that should give us some more confidence then in the teaching that produced that society. So I'm not saying that this definitely proves that the resurrection is true, but it does give some more weight to it, doesn't it? It's just very rare that there'd be something that was false that would produce something good. Normally there's a grain of goodness in something that produces what looks like good on the ground. And this is producing something so good, you have to ask questions. What is this teaching? Could it be true? <clears throat> Well, as I've been reflecting on this passage this week, I've been thinking maybe the reason that I find the eyewitness testimony more persuasive than my non-Christian friends do is maybe because I've been part of a Christian community all my life. I've seen it from the inside out. Now, the church I grew up in was far from perfect, but I could see, even growing up as a teenager, that there was something different about people in the church. I could sense that there was some kind of genuine love going on there, Something that I couldn't just explain by normal human reasons. 
And I think that is what makes me then more open to say, well, now I've seen this resurrection community lived out in, in reality. That makes me more open to think, well, maybe this is where it came from. So maybe you're here this morning and you're somebody who has got a lot of questions about all of this supernatural stuff. Well, it might help, I think, to think of that iceberg. We're seeing something here that's, that's visible, this, this sharing. And I wonder if you've seen that in Christian friends you know, people who really believe in the resurrection. Have you seen that perhaps they've become caring about people? Have you seen that they perhaps do hold slightly more loosely to stuff in this world? They're a bit less materialistic than the rest of us. Well, if you have seen that, this passage would suggest, why don't you look and see whether there's anything below the surface? Maybe that is a sign of something much deeper, something much bigger going on in their lives. Uh, John Calvin said, uh, when he was talking to some Christians, he said, we would have to have bowels of iron not to feel ashamed if we're Christians as we're reading this. Well, I don't know... Um, what people were like in his church. Um, but knowing us, I think that we're probably all reading this and probably feeling a bit guilty. We're probably feeling a bit ashamed that we're not really like this, is probably what we're thinking. Uh, but remember, Luke's whole aim is to give us confidence. He wants us to have a stronger confidence that God is really at work among us. And so if you guys all go away this morning feeling a bit guilty that you're not really sharing enough, in a way, this won't have really uh, been a good sermon, because I won't have really shared what Luke is trying to share with us. Um, and so before we go any further, let's just stop and remember that this is really all about what God did in the early church, first and foremost. It's not a to-do list here to make mm. us feel guilty. Even if this never happened again, this would still be amazing evidence that the resurrection changes people, that the resurrection really transforms us, that the Spirit was at work in that community. It really did, didn't it? That community that sprang up 2,000 years ago was a place where, as people heard about the resurrection, people felt like they wanted to give, like they wanted to share what they had. It was a place where needy people felt like they could say, you know what, I actually need some help here. And there was so much of this going on, among 5,000 people, there was not a needy person among them. There was nobody who was having, no, no kids who were having to go out every day wearing the same shirt, because that's all they've got. Uh, nobody who's having to go out and beg, because they don't know where they can provide for their family from. There's no widows who are worrying about how they can pay for the next bill. There are no needy people among them. It was brilliant. It was God at work testifying to the truth of the resurrection. But hopefully as we see that, that will actually increase our faith in all of this. Hopefully as we see this, we're thinking, yeah, I can see how that resurrection thing really does make a difference. And then we will want to go further, won't we, like Calvin says, and start trying to see if we can live this out more and more in our community. And I think, actually, there's lots to be encouraged about as we look at ourselves from this passage today. And as many of you will know, Emma and I are currently expecting our first baby. And so we're beginning to get an insight into the kind of baby culture in Kirkpatrick. And as many of you will know, there's a real culture of sharing. Um, we've already had one couple who have given us a baby changing table. 
And there's another couple who have given us a bouncer and a bath, and goodness knows what else. Um, and in fact, I don't really know all the ins and outs of it, so I'll leave it there. But it's been brilliant to see that. Um, I actually feel a bit cheeky preaching on this passage, because I'm kind of hoping we're going to be beneficiaries of <laughs> in a few weeks. Um, actually, somebody else uh, has even gone a bit further. Uh, I can't make use of these, because uh, we're not at that stage yet. But somebody's brought in these uh, bikes. There's this one. And there's a bigger one as well. Um, and somebody basically came into the church a few weeks ago and said, we don't need these anymore. So could you pass them on to somebody, somebody who needs them? I reckon it's probably only going to be good for you if you've got baby girls or young girls. Um, uh, but if, if you want those, if you could do with those, if that would be useful for your family, just come and speak to me after the service today and we can let you have those. That's brilliant, isn't it? That's the kind of community that is happening here. Uh, and it's not just baby stuff or kids stuff. Um, I checked the freezer for the freezer ministry this morning and there's a good amount of stuff in there. There's a few holes, but it's pretty full. Uh, it's brilliant. We really embrace that because we want to share what we have with people in need. And I'm sure for every one thing that I see, because I'm kind of in the church building a lot of the time, I'm sure for every one thing I see, there's about 20 or 30 things happening um, that I just don't get to hear about. But let's, let's keep going, shall we? Let's keep this as our aim, that we don't have any immediate people among us. Let's try and keep our eyes open for the people who might be in need. It's definitely not the case that we're all well off and we've all got enough money. There are plenty of people here who are struggling, who are tired. Uh, we're going to think a little bit later about how practically we might be able to do that a bit better. But let's keep remembering that it's not really about just uh, doing it to do this, just trying to imitate this. What we really want to do is see that the resurrection is true that Jesus is alive, that the Spirit can afford that, that we're part of what God is doing. That's the thing that will motivate us and empower us to be generous with each other. Okay, let's move on to the second uh, sign, and we're going to be a bit briefer as we look at this one. Uh, this is chapter 5, the Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. Well, it looks like we've got here a story about some people who weren't really fully committed to giving, and God just killed them. Well, whatever else is happening here, you can tell that Luke is pretty committed to honesty. He doesn't just airbrush this out of his account. He wants to include it. He wants to be honest about some of the difficulties that there were in the early church, as well as some of the big highlights. What actually is happening here? Is this really about giving? And let's just have a look at verses 3 to 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. Can you see that the problem here is not really about giving? Ananias chooses to sell his field, and he chooses to bring the money to the, to the church community. And Peter says, you didn't need to do any of that. That was all your choice. That was great, but that was your choice. The problem was that he lied about it. And he lied to God. 
He was using the church community to make himself look good. They wanted to be known as, as big givers, really generous people. But they weren't committed to the resurrection enough that they actually were willing to be honest about how much they were going to give. They were wanting to use the church community for their own purposes, to puff themselves up for their own pride and image. And God has got no time for that. And again, I think maybe the, if you picture the iceberg, that's a helpful image here. What we can see in this passage is the lack of giving. But Peter is able to see what's going on underneath the surface. And it's a wrong attitude to God. It's people who haven't been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead, they've given away to the temptation to live for this world. And I'm sure as we're listening to this, we're kind of thinking, well, I do that all the time. Am I going to leave church this morning? Uh, is God going to kill me? Why is, why is God so harsh, we might be thinking, with this couple? Well, I think at one level, this is just totally justified. This is a crime against God. This is people trying to use God's church for their own purposes. It's people not caring about lying to the Holy Spirit. It's rebellion against God. And God's always been clear about what the penalty for that rebellion is. It, it's death. So all that's really happening here is God is bringing forward his judgment of this couple into the present time. They would face death ultimately if they continued in their rebellion. God brings it forward. And so if we're struggling with this, we maybe need to go back and think about why, why is sin so serious? Why is it that God hates sin so much? And actually, I think God is doing this as a real kindness to the rest of us. It seems like God is bringing forward this judgment to act as a warning to the rest of us in the church. Have a look at verse 5. When Ananias heard Peter's words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. It's actually the same phrasing as, as Nick uses when he says, Great grace came upon all who heard these things, or who were part of it. And in verse 11, same, same phrase, great fear seized the whole church. Great fear came upon them. Do you see what's happening here? Luke is saying that the spiritual church is a community of great grace. God's grace clearly seen and great fear. People are aware of the awesome power of God. Well, our instinct might be to say, but hang on a second, this doesn't really seem to happen today. We haven't heard of too many Ananias and Sapphira incidents. I think it's right, that's a good instinct. This is unusual, this kind of particular event. This does seem to be tied up to the apostles. But other parts of the New Testament are clear that what God is in the business of doing now is judging the church. He's not so concerned about judging the world now. That will happen in the future. For now, he's judging the church. In 1 Corinthians, we read about some people in the church who don't care about other people in the church. They're just using them for their own purposes. And they're eating the Lord's Supper as they do that. They're coming to church and they're taking communion. And Paul says 
that those people are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. It's really scary, isn't it? He even says that's why some of them have fallen ill and have died. Now Paul is clear that for Christians, that kind of judgment is not condemnation, as we normally kind of understand judgment. It's more discipline. It's God making sure that the church is kept safe, so that it's pure, so that it won't be condemned by God. It's a kind of way of God preserving his church, actually. But it does show you that the Spirit is still active, that he's still judging the church, disciplining us. I heard a story a couple of weeks ago about an apparently very godly but deeply conservative elder in a rural church. And he was very opposed to a, a plan to merge or link his church with another church. Um, and he was really convinced But one Christmas he came into the church and he saw a Christmas tree at the front of the church. And as he sat down in his, in his pew, he became very, very angry. And he actually had a heart attack and died. Now, we don't know what's going on there, do we? I wouldn't want to say. It's not our place to say. And apparently he was a very godly man. But the thing is, we just don't know. Maybe that was God judging him. Who knows what the Spirit of God is doing? But we're told here that he's a work in the church. In our discipleship group last time, we were looking at chapter 2, and we saw how Luke said that everyone in the church was filled with awe. And as we were chatting, I was just listening in, but as we were chatting, we worked out that that was a really good thing. It was a kind of healthy respect of God. It was an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit among the people. And we actually said we would not mind a bit more of that, if only we could have a real sense of God among well, guys, here you go. Hopefully this helps us to feel a bit more of that awe. But it's a good thing, actually, isn't it, if we respect God, if we're aware that this is serious, what we're doing here in church. If we're aware that church isn't a place for us to parade ourselves, to look good in front of others, if we're aware that it's about more than just human beings, about our concerns, if actually God is here among us, if he's really doing something that would actually really help us to stop being idiots a bit more. So, great grace and great fear. Two signs that the church is not just a human society, but a place that is filled with God's Spirit. There's a danger, I think, that churches emphasise one or the other of these. And some churches emphasise the fear of judgement, don't they? They talk so much about hell and make you really question whether you're going to be saved at all. And I suggest those churches will find it hard to do the chapter 4 side of it, because they won't have the security. People will be questioning their future all the time, and so they'll find it hard to be truly generous. There won't be very much grace there. But then other churches can overreact to that and say, forget about all that judgment stuff. Love is all you need. But the danger there is that we open the door to Satan coming into the church, tempting us to think that it's just about our human concerns. We open the door for a church where people are just continuing to look good all the time, by their giving, by their image, by whatever. 
We need to have both of these. And that's what we'd expect to find when the Spirit is really working. Great grace and great fear. Well, how could we have both of those? I think the answer is to do what we're doing, is to get into the Bible, to get into this story of the early church, to see how the Spirit really did do both of these things in the church then. And he's doing them both now. Go back to the resurrection. Think about God's mighty act in raising Jesus from the dead. An act that means that we will all stand before Jesus for one day. That's a scary thing, isn't it? But it's also a wonderful thing. Because we know that if we turn to God, trusting in Jesus, we will be safe on that day. We will meet Jesus, but he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll say, come in to the kingdom I prepared for you. Great grace and great fear. Let's try it. Our Father, we're conscious of the times when we don't treat this community as really your community. When we just come to church thinking that we're just ticking a box or doing a human thing. And we want to say that we're sorry for that. We want to ask you, please, to fill us more with your Holy Spirit. Change us so that we'll be more generous, so that we'll be more loving to people around us. Thank you for the ways that you have been doing that among us. And Father, we pray too that you'll keep us with a healthy sense of respect of you. We pray that we'll never treat this place or this community or these people as just people for our own ends. Father, we pray that we would humbly serve each other, trusting in Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.